The wisdom of experts can change your life. As a co-chair at the University of Texas, you've attained this elite status from growing and evolving over the course of your coaching career. In our Learning from Experts podcast, exclusively for the head coaches here at the University of Texas, we're going to accelerate that process. You'll hear from world-class coaches, sports psychologists, and successful people. And occasionally, it's the wisdom that impacts other areas of your life, like your health or your marriage. But here's something really important to appreciate. Timing. Hearing something at exactly the right time makes all the difference. Sometimes it's repetition. Hearing a concept multiple times until it resonates with you. So buckle up. This week's Learning from the Experts is about to begin. Hey coaches, John Mitchell here. Hey, I hope you're doing well. This week we're going to hear from Nick Sapin's mental coach, the legendary Trevor Moat. So a quick story I think you'll find interesting. About three years ago, I met Trevor Moat. I met him because I had suggested to CDC that we make the University of Texas the gold standard for mental training and conditioning. And Therefore, it made a lot of sense for us to get to know Trevor. And so I got to know him, and then I introduced him to CDC. We had an amazing conversation with Trevor over Zoom. But unfortunately, Trevor passed away from cancer a couple months after our conversation, and so we never were able to move things forward with him. Nevertheless, I want to share with you Trevor's wisdom from this Impact Theory podcast. Listen for how he says that Nick Saban discovered that he needed a system, a system for impacting the mental side of the game. You'll also learn that negative things you say out loud are 40 to 70 times more impactful than thinking something positive. And finally, listen for when he talks about the illusion of choice. You'll find that fascinating. And after the interview, I'll recap what we learned. So listen for my recap after the interview. Then I want you to listen to Bill Gates. He talks about the 10 lessons of success. And here's the essence of what you'll learn today. Life is a state of mind. And to influence the mind, it requires a system. Do you have a system in place for influencing your daily mindset and that of your team? So with that said, hey, let's get rolling and listen to this fabulous interview of Trevor Moat. And remember, as a coach here at the University of Texas, hey, you're living the dream. You're listening to Impact Theory. Impact Theory. Impact Theory. Impact Theory. Impact, baby! Hey everybody, welcome to Impact Theory. Today's guest is a former all-conference, two-sport college athlete who has turned himself into one of the most sought-after performance coaches on the planet. He's worked with 11 number one draft picks and helped roughly 700 world-class athletes prepare for the NFL draft. He's worked closely with some of the most prestigious NCAA football programs and coaches, including Nick Saban, one of the most heralded coaches college football has ever seen. Proving that his methods work in real life, he's been part of eight national championship games and worked with top performers across virtually every major sport there is. He's helped train tennis players, golfers, Major League Baseball players, NBA players, UFC fighters, U.S. Special Forces personnel, and even some of the highest achieving CEOs in business today. 
Sports Illustrated named him the sports world's best brain trainer, and he co-starred with future Hall of Fame quarterback Russell Wilson on ESPN's QB to QB, as well as appearing in ESPN's hit show Draft Academy. He's been featured by countless major media outlets, including USA Today, NPR, Sports Illustrated, Fox Sports, and many others. So please, help me in welcoming the man the highest performing people and organizations around the globe bring in when they need that winning edge, the CEO of Limitless Minds and the author of It Takes What It Takes, Trevor Mawad. Hi, man. Welcome. Great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. What a privilege. Anybody that is deep into the world of the fundamentals of thinking yeah. has me at hello. Yes. And I love that that's basically the thrust of your book is there is a way to think that will be useful for you and there's a way to think that won't be. Yes. All right. So now diving into, um, there's really two concepts that I think set you apart. You've got just how powerful negative thinking is and some of the stats around that, which are pretty terrifying, and some of the stories that you have on that, which are I think will really shake people out. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, there's neutral thinking. So I think that's sort of uh, the next one, two that we should walk through. Yeah, and, and, and then I think probably the third part of that would be sort of the impact of behavior, you know, of identifying behavior. But what I learned ultimately, my dad was the president of the National Association for Self-Esteem. Most people probably don't even know there is that. <laughs> and he was one of the first authors of Chicken Soup for the Soul. So for anybody that's probably above 35, they would know that. But the power of positive thinking never resonated with me. And when I was young and I was 18 years old, I'd drop out of college and I was diagnosed with an initial diagnosis of cancer. And it turned out to be shingles and a number of other things. I did start to understand quickly that, well, I don't know if positive thinking works all the time. And that the data is anecdotal. I do know that negative thinking does work. And it works negatively. And one of the things is I would start at Alabama. And I would start with the Jacksonville Jaguars. And I would start with the Miami Dolphins. I started to realize, and even looking back to a young age, that nobody wants to be told to be positive. That positive thinking is probably the number one reason this industry has not grown in my 44 years of living. Positive thinking, in many cases, repulses people. You're telling me to be positive and I'm going through a divorce. You're telling me to be positive and I threw three interceptions. You're telling me to be positive and I got to deal with this president. You're telling me to be positive and I got this current situation. You're telling me to be positive and I got this health situation. So then what's the alternative? Well, the alternative has always been negative. So when we would get to the University of Alabama, you have a, this finite window of time. How long could you influence? Uh, everything comes down to influence. Would you agree? Yeah whether it's your family, your kids, whatever the circumstances, the situations. So the NCAA gives you 22 hours to influence your players over a week. And so when you look at the human performance, you look at nutrition, you look at strength and conditioning, you look at fatigue science, you look at all these different things. Coach Saban believed that there had to be some emphasis on psychological education. And so how are we going to do that and how is it going to be efficient? Well, most people think of sports psychology as treating somebody who has a problem. Mm -hmm. Nick Saban didn't look at it that way. He looked at how do we make our best players better? How do we take great players and make them greater? And then how do we have an educational platform for all 120 players? And a college football team is a business. It's 120 employees, and you lose 35% of the employees every year. And it's an EBITDA-driven business where when you succeed – 
you get more sponsorship. Mm -hmm. And as you get more sponsorship, you make more money. And as you make more money, the school makes more money and everybody benefits. And it all happens from winning. But if your best players leave every year in that 35% and they take their great behaviors and their great habits and their great mindset with them, then you're in trouble. So you have to develop programmatics. You have to develop a system. I mean, you look at Quest and what you guys did that ultimately when you were going to sell it or you're going to evolve, that there had to be, if we're going to create the ultimate metabolic type of food or we're going to limit, like the recipe has to be the same so you're not the only one that can cook it. So ultimately, psychologically, we had to come up with a plan for everybody. I think that learning how to meditate and regulate your breath is important. But to me, I think that's AP chemistry. And we need an eighth grade version where we just know, okay, that there's a, 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 a table of elements and we need the basics. And, and so that's what we did. When we started to study, what we learned was that negative thinking was the most powerful element that our players were combating that negative thinking was weaponized, weaponizing them against them. So how's negativity carried? Well, is it your internal thoughts? Well, if you're dealing with trying to change internal thoughts, then you got to go to affirmations and you got to go to imagery, you got to go to visualization. Very difficult skills. Well, we started to look at the externalization. Well, if somebody says something out loud, it's 10 times more powerful than if they think it. And then as we started to study the data, particularly data that was just reinforced by Christine Porath from Georgetown and Harvard, that negativity is a multiple of four to seven times more powerful than positivity. So think about that. If I say something out loud, it's 10x. If it's negative, it's four to seven times more powerful. So when I say negative things out loud, it's 40 to 70 times more likely that that will happen or cause a result that won't be good for me than if I just didn't say anything. So as we were going into our second year at Alabama, and we were going into our first year at Florida State, and we were ultimately going into our second year at the University of Georgia, we made a bet. What if we could just get our players to not say stupid things out loud? What if we could just do that? Not teach any element of positive thinking, but eliminate conversations about the heat, complaining about coaches, complaining about circumstances, complaining about situations, verbalizing negativity. But we weren't going to lie to them and say, hey, be positive. We just taught them the data. And then what we did was some of the things that you, you noticed in the book, the stories in and around negativity are incredible. Tell us some. Bill Buckner was one that took my breath away. So, so Billy Buckner, who just passed away recently, was uh, an incredible an eight-time gold glove, a great baseball player for the Boston Red Sox. Well, he made a mistake in sports that would be one of the biggest sport bloopers in history. And in 1986, he let the game-winning run score on a ground ball through his legs that ultimately would give the Mets the World Series. Mm -hmm. Now, I was just watching an ESPN E60 Jeremy Schapp story, and I saw an interview that was done in 1990 that resurfaced in 1995 where Buckner was interviewed 12 days before the World Series. And he said, you know, the dreams are to win you know, to win the World Series, and the nightmare would be for me to let the game-winning run score on a ground ball through my legs. You know, and then ultimately, that's exactly what would happen. Now, by saying that out loud, what did he do? He didn't make it happen, but he increased the probability. And this is what I want people to understand. Your internal thoughts are all over the place. I, I want to push on that. Yeah. Do you think that he makes it more likely because it's going to subtly influence his behavior or because you're talking to some magical deity that then says, well, you said it, and so I'm going to make it happen. I think that what he did is a subconscious plant. 
by verbalizing it and knowing that it's 10 times more powerful, he's planting it in his subconscious. He's not, he doesn't want it to happen, but it becomes something that's ultimately on his mind and he gave it more power by verbalizing it. And then wasn't there somebody that said, oh, I, I worry that I'm going to retire and die at 40 of a heart attack? Right, so, so Pistol Pete Maravich, uh, a basketball player, I'll give you two other examples, but, but he was interviewed at 26 years old, and he said, you know, I don't want to play 10 years of pro basketball and die at the age of 40 of a heart attack. Well, he played 10 years of pro basketball and in Pasadena, California, died of a heart attack at 40. There's another great story that I saw um, from a magazine called Success Unlimited in 1973, a guy is hired to fix a refrigerated boxcar in back of a train. He goes into the train. He panics, gets himself locked inside the boxcar. So now he's pounding on the door. There's nothing to do. He starts to panic and thinks he's going to freeze to death. He finds a pen. He starts writing down, Tom, what's going through his mind. And he writes down, I'm becoming colder. As people, one of the things we do to ourselves is observe and report. I'm not playing well. I'm having a bad day. We're having a bad quarter. My marriage isn't going well. We observe and report. Still colder now, he writes, nothing to do but wait. Half asleep, I could hardly write. Finally, he says, these may be my last words. And I'll show you the article. They open up the boxcar many hours later, and they find him, and he's dead. But the temperature inside the boxcar was 56 degrees. That's so crazy. The freezing apparatus was broken. There was plenty of air in the boxcar. There was no physical reason for his death. The best they could say is somehow he talked himself into dying. And as you know, the book covers the psychogenic death in and around the Korean War. Mm. When the Korean War, one-third of all American POWs died, and they said that one of the things that was done in the POW camps was the negativity. They manufactured articles about the United States being bombed. They withheld all positivity. They didn't give them any mail. Believe it or not, there are like uh, regulations for POW camps throughout mm. the world, and ultimately they filled up these healthy American soldiers with all this doubt a, a, a priest would end up calling it give up itis and healthy American soldiers over a period of days would walk over to a corner, sit down and die of broken hearts. So negativity is the most powerful thing we're combating. Look at our politics today. A positive message versus a negative message. It's no, no, no chance. Have you ever read Man's Search for Meaning? I haven't read that. Oh, Tell me God, about you're going to love it. So, Man's Search for Meaning, Victor Frankl, in a concentration camp. Oh, yes, yes, camp. yes, yes. It's actually in multiple... If I remember right, he was in five different concentration camps. Yes. And ultimately, um, he says that he you could tell within 72 hours when someone was going to die because they would give up. Yep. And he said once they gave up, then it was a 72-hour clock. They no longer knew why they were fighting, and, and they would just die. Right. And he was like, but the people that kept a mental image of what they were suffering for, like what it was right. they were going to do once they got out for their family, for whatever, he said that they would push through. And it just, I mean, look, there's obviously a million and one reasons to die in a concentration camp. Right. But the fact that even in the concentration camp, they could go, I, 72 hours, we can peg it right. because we've seen that person give up. Right. Like, that's just crazy to me. Well, and, and, and I just think when, when I think about being seven years old in the Tacoma Golf and Country Club and walking off the golf course, and my dad, you know, everybody call him Mr. Positive and this and that. But in fairness to my dad, when he was raised and he was teaching, the only thing was positive and negative. So if you weren't negative, you had to be positive. But that just never made sense to me. And if we could just learn how to not be negative, how to not externalize negative, then ultimately that would help them more than ever trying to be told to be positive. I love what you say, just shut your mouth. I thought that was, you've said it even more aggressively. More than aggressively. I, I, 
I think it's super fucking powerful. Right. So what do you mean by that? Why is that so critical? Well, if, if just if you follow the data and you say stupid shit out loud, ultimately you're predicting and perpetuating exactly what you don't want to have happen. And who's always in control of what Tom Billy you says? You're always in control of what you say. People say, yeah, but I can't. The thinking, everybody's fucked up in the thoughts. I've been with people the night before Super Bowl, the night before national championships, eight different times where the doubt's there, but we're not externalizing it. And then I'll have people say, well, what, do you want me to lie? I'm not telling you to lie. I'm telling you that if you look at the information and you say, I don't want to be here today. I hate this job. God dang. They, or, or you look at Mohamed Sanu. They're, down, they're up 28-3 in the Super Bowl playing against Tom Brady. And he looks at his friend and says, hey, man, they still got Tom Brady on their side. There is no lead that's safe. Well, fuck, why are you saying that? Mm. You know, and, and you're almost predicting that that's what's going to happen. Now, ultimately... Not saying stupid things out loud is you have to create an alternative. So I started thinking about a car. If a car's going backwards, it can't automatically go forward. So it has to, to shift into neutral, and then it stops. Then at that point, you can either go forward by changing your behavior, or you can go backwards by doing the same stupid shit you were just doing. Neutral is truth-based thinking. What's the truth? Okay? In 2010... You're running a, a, a data loss company, right? You've been doing it for eight years. You graduated from USC film. You're, that's not what you want to do. You're 60 pounds overweight. You lose your weight. You find two buddies and you say, hey, man, uh, we're going to go into my kitchen. We're going to find a way to, to create a product that's going to be different than anything anybody knows. Well, I'm educated in this because I partnered with Gatorade Sports Science Institute at IMG. And, I, you, know, and you created a value proposition that ultimately, you know, based upon... You didn't let your past predict your future. You used your past was real, but I want to be do something different. So this you behave is, differently. This is, this is a really interesting part of what you say, that the past isn't predictive. Correct. So talk to me more about that, because I, I would say most people would say that the past is definitely predictive. Right, which is great, but they'd be wrong. <laughs> right? So they would be wrong. And the simple fact of the matter is the past is real. Okay? So the only thing that makes it predictive is if my behavior stays the same. So I'll give you a great story. Um, so we both grew up in Tacoma, and there used to be a, a thing called Toastmasters. I don't know if you remember Toastmasters, but Toastmasters was a local, regional, and a national speaking group for anybody that wanted to get better at speaking. <clears throat> well, my dad had gone to a Toastmasters early on and heard one of the most successful magazine entrepreneurs in the world speak. He comes back and tells me, I just had a chance to hear one of the most successful magazine entrepreneurs in the world speak. And he said, when are you taking your SAT? I said, I'm taking it next year. He said, well, this guy was failing out of high school. He was struggling. He was raised by a single mom in the Midwest, but he promised his mother he would take a test called the SAT. So he takes the SAT in May, his junior year, doesn't expect anything, gets his score back in June. Now the SAT, which I don't know how many your population know, but it's, it's a standardized test with a math part and a verbal part. Both are scored out of 800 points. Well, this guy takes it. He's, he's bombing. He's failing out of school. He doesn't expect anything as he's telling the story at Toastmasters. Well, he gets a 1480 out of 1600. So he's stunned, right? That would be for the smart That's people that listen to your podcast. Insane, yeah. Right, cognitive dissonance. Right? I got a like, 900 on my SATs just right. to give people a frame. Right, and I got a, a 1090, excuse me. And I got a 1010, right? I was just, hey, four digits. <laughs> it was a miracle, right? And, and, but it's a hard test, and it, you, you know, it's a variety of different things. So he gets the score. And his mother, doing what any mother would do, knowing her kids, says, did you cheat? 
right? She knows her son. And he says, I swear to God, I tried to cheat, but the way the numbers were and the scantrons and the bubbles, you couldn't cheat. So she says, you mean to tell me you really got that score? He said, yeah, I got the score. So he's stunned, Tom. So as my dad's telling me the story, I'm like, okay. So he says, all right. So what he decides is because he realizes he's smart and he's going into his senior year, he says, I'm going to go to class. Now he starts to go to class. He doesn't hang out with who he did when he didn't go to class. All right. Teachers see him in class and they said, hey, maybe Franklin Pierce, maybe we missed the boat on this kid. So they start to treat him differently. Well, as the guy would tell the story, he graduates, goes to a community college, goes on to Wichita State, goes on to the Ivy League, and becomes this massively successful magazine entrepreneur. So I said, okay. Well, the guy was always smart. He just needed a standardized test to unlock it. My dad said, no, that's not the story. And this is what I want you to understand. He said, 12 years after all this guy's success, he gets a letter in the mail from Princeton, New Jersey. Doesn't think anything about it. The next day, his wife says, you're going to open it. He opens it. True story, turns out the SAT board will periodically review their test-taking procedures and the policies. The year he took the test, he was one of 13 people sent the wrong SAT score. His actual score was a 740 out of 1600. <laughs> and he said, people think my whole life changed when I got the 1480. But what happened? My whole life changed when I started acting like a 1480. And what does a 1480 do? He goes to class. Well, this is one of the first stories I would share when I had my opportunity at Alabama or Florida State or Georgia. So A, your language is powerful, but number two, your behavior is way ahead of your success. And so many people let their feelings dictate what they do as opposed to throw your behavior out there. Russell Wilson's 5'10". He shouldn't be playing pro football, but he behaves like the best quarterback in the country. And he's done that since before he was at that level and then his feelings and emotions and his skill caught up to that behavior. I think the lesson my dad was trying to teach me um, ultimately was in addition to my language, what I do, not how I feel about my past, is going to determine who I am in the future. And that's what I think neutral thinking is. And I think neutral thinking isn't just thinking. I think it's behavior and I think it's language. And so your behavior is what's going to change you. But you also have to start by asking yourself, what do I want and why do I want it? Why don't I have it? You know, what am I willing to do to get it? And I do think in, in terms of listening to, to one of your earlier podcasts, I do think there's value in writing things down, but in a really simple way. Um, I've learned probably the most things through the best athletes in the world. And Michael Johnson, who had the gold shoes, I'll never forget, Drew Brees were, were training for the NFL Combine in 2001. There's 18 guys. Michael just finished winning his fourth gold medal, and he comes in, and he's just, just a badass dude. Fastest man alive at that Fastest point. Fastest man alive at that point. Um, he had just run uh, the 43-18, um, you know, and then when he ran the 19-3, it was uh, 26 miles per hour. The fastest, the fastest oh. 50 to 150, he ran 9-1 flat. So all these athletes were in awe of Michael. And I, I think Drew at the time says, hey, man, do you set goals? He said, yeah. He said, where'd you learn? He said, what do you mean, where'd I learn? He said, where'd you learn? Like, do you learn in college? He said, I didn't learn in college. He said, did you learn, like, smart goals? Like, what the fuck are smart goals? You know, and smart goals are specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and with the time frame. Michael said, when I would go into Safeway, I recognized that if I walked into Safeway and I wrote eight things down, I would walk into Safeway and I'd walk out of Safeway in five minutes. If I walked into Safeway and had nothing written down, I would be in there for 20 minutes and I'd find myself on aisle eight and I'd be anxious and I'd be nervous and I'd be, why am I looking at the wheat thins and the ho-hos when I know I don't need any of those things? 
And he said, so because I wrote it down in Safeway and it worked, I figured, why would I be any different about my athletic career? And I think that that's the level that we need to educate people. I hope it takes what it takes, basically is an introduction to self-help. That when I look at mindfulness being the brand and, and uh, Headspace being a billion-dollar valuation, and I sit there and think, at you know, 44 years old and growing up in this my whole life, the only time I can meditate is at the end of church. It's such a challenging skill. And is it important? Absolutely, it's important. Do our affirmations important? Absolutely, they're important. Are changing from the inside out important? Yes, but they're not the starting points. Don't say stupid shit out loud. Be mindful of what you consume. If I watch three minutes of news, it increases my probability by 27%. I'm going to say I had a shitty day. Right when I was going through, and you know, when I was going through uh, a divorce, I had a lawsuit. I had some health challenges, all these different types of things. If I'm listening to Jake Owen or Sam Hunt, I love New Country, but New Country makes me just want to go run and jump off a cliff. You know, it makes me think I'm never going to meet another girl ever again in my life, which I hope is not true. You know, and and so what are the things that are in our control? What we watch when we get home, what we listen to when we're in our car who we talk to when we get on our cell phone, and what we say out loud always as we speak. And I think that those are the powerful things, and ultimately our behavior is what's going to define our success. Mm. Yeah, I love that, man. It really does all come down to behavior, and that all of this boils down to what you do on a day-to-day basis, which brings me to a concept that you got from your dad about hope and how powerful that is. How can people use hope? Why does it matter? How does that fit into this equation? Yeah, I I think my dad's belief was when you become helpless, you become hopeless. And when I feel like I can control my behavior, when I feel like I'm in control of, even if I'm going through cancer, even if I'm going through a difficult challenge, even if I'm going through a reorg in a business, you know, if, if I still feel like, okay, this is not optimal, but there's something I can do, then I'm helpful to myself. And when I'm helpful, I'm hopeful. And when I'm helpless, I'm hopeless. So my dad's belief always was to make hope a habit. And and that hope was the most powerful medicine that we all have. And then I think we have to believe that we can influence our future. You know, we've got to believe. I believe that no matter what I'm facing, I can influence my future. That just because my first marriage didn't work, that doesn't mean my second marriage won't. But it's incumbent upon me to be better. Right. And that's where if I'm spending time, well, she didn't do this. She didn't do. There's nothing I can do about that. Right. But that's true. And that's where you're talking about. Well, the past feels predictive. Right. Well, I thought, you know, hey, what what are you going to do to be different going forward? But so many people think the self-help industry is about things you do. I think one of the things that makes athletes so incredible is what they're willing not to do. What they're willing not to say what they're willing not to eat, what they're they're willing not to consume, what they're willing not to watch. That's what makes, think about, it's January 2020, what are five things you cannot do right now that will instantly make your life better? Talk to me about the illusion of choice. Yeah. I think that's so powerful. You know, it was was really fascinating. So um, I was, um, you know, obviously I've worked in the sports world for a long time, and I was, my first NBA team was the Memphis Grizzlies. And guys love college football. And Vince Carter, 
uh, who's 42 now, the same age as Tom Brady, and still playing in the NBA, plays for wow. Atlanta. Vince was about 37 at the time. And we had just had three players arrested at one of the programs I was headed to Whoa. in one night. Like, we hit our quota for, <laughs> like, for a night. And Vince and I were talking. He loved college football. And he said, he said uh, how many of those guys, Trev, want to play in the NBA or in the NFL? And I said, probably seven out of ten. And he said, and isn't it crazy? They think they can do whatever they want and still make it to that level. And I said, what do you mean? He said, he said well, I'm 37. I'm still playing in the NBA. You think I can do whatever I want? I said, what do you mean? Yeah, I do think you can. He said, no, my choices are finite. I said, what do you mean? Like choice is an illusion? He said, choice is absolutely an illusion. There's a set of behaviors that I do that allow me to play at 37. I can't slam dunk the ball now. Yes, I can still slam dunk, but if I slam dunk, it takes its toll on my knees, and I can't get back and play defense fast enough. So when I get down, I lay the ball up more times than not. I don't eat fast food after games. I lift weight every day of games. And I said, so choice is an illusion. He said, yeah. And I ended up going, at that point, he was heading over to the University of Alabama, and we sort of coined the idea of the illusion of choice. There are no choices. When you decide, when you decided you wanted to build, you didn't decide you wanted to build a billion-dollar empire, but you decided you wanted to make a different type of uh, nutritional bar, correct? Mm. Did you start with the bar? And so there was, there was either going to be a way that you did it or there was going to be the way, and there was going to be a way that tasted just like muscle milk or there was going to be a way that was going to be different. And you either did it or you didn't, correct? Yeah. And you were either going to commit the time, and I'm just using you as an example, but if I want to have a good relationship, I saw a statistic that said the average married couple talks 27 minutes a week. I was talking to some of my buddies about that, and they're like, that much? Where did I find all the time? But uh, that's obviously not a good statistic. Well, are you born with the gift to make time for people? No, it's a behavior. So to me, the illusion of choice is thinking you can have a good marriage and talk 27 minutes a week. So you have to make time in order to talk. And maybe you're on the road. You travel a lot. Turning your TV off when you're on the road. Doing simple better. Turning the TV off, turning the light off, and just engaging in a conversation. You know, if you're engaging with your kids, there's a way to do it and there's a way not to do it. Thinking you have an infinite amount of choices is idiotic. And this generation right now, Generation Z and Generation Y, both think they can do whatever the fuck they want to do and, and still achieve things. You can achieve whatever you want to do in many cases if you're willing to get behind the behaviors that drive that success. But it won't be anything. Pete Carroll for the Seahawks, he'll let you go to bed at 5 in the morning if you want, as long as you can perform to... A 9.5 standard when you get there. Okay? Well, what you're going to figure out is you can't go to bed at 5 in the morning. Okay? So you're going to have to adapt your behavior to get in alignment with winning behaviors. So the illusion of choice is this fact that there are not an infinite amount of choices. There may be options. Yeah, I can get uh, uh, pasta instead of a cheeseburger. But even if I want to maintain a diet or maintain optimal health, then I have to limit how much calorie intake, uh, what type of foods. When I, when I first lost weight, I, I didn't understand that Gatorade had 800 calories in it. You know when you drink those four Gatorades, even though all you're eating is Lunchables, you're actually like, driving all these calories, and it's just, am I doing simple better? And if you want to lose weight, there's a way to do it. Yeah.
I love that. That's super powerful that your choices yeah. are limited by what you're trying to achieve. Right. There's a finite amount. Yeah. That's really smart. Yeah. Where can people connect with you, find out more about what you're up to, get the book? Yeah. So the book right now is at thinkbig-gofar.com slash book. But they can get it on Audible. They can get it on HarperCollins. They can get it on really any different environment. Um, I've kind of only had Twitter for a couple years. So I'm just learning how to do social media. So um, they can follow at Trevor Moad, T-R-E-V-O-R-M-O-A-W-A-D. I think we've done a nice job. Um, and then uh, um, in the sports world, I have the Moad Group, which kind of works with athletes. And then Limitless Minds is our business that works with corporations and executives. Nice. All right. What is the impact that you want to have on the world with all these things that you're doing? I want to demystify thinking. I just, I want to demystify it. I don't want people to feel like it's only for people that are really, really bright. I want to demystify the idea that, that change is a challenge. Nice. I like that. Well, guys, I love that he is taking a new approach to thinking, whether it's just understanding the difference between positive and negative and understanding that there's something else in the middle or all of the nuanced stuff that he goes into the book. I think they're incredibly powerful tactics that you will find immeasurably useful in your life. Check out the book, engage with him on social. It will definitely allow you to get to that next level. And speaking of next level, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Hey, coaches. That was so enlightening. I hope you found it beneficial to you. So let me share with you three takeaways just to think about. So here's the first one. Nick Saban discovered he needed a system for impacting the mental side of the game. He realized that 35% of his workforce left each year. People's mental approach was every bit as important as their physical conditioning. So he created a process for getting his players where he wanted them mentally. Here's the second takeaway. Negative things that you say out loud are 40 to 70 times more impactful than thinking about something positive. And just follow the math on this. So what you say out loud is 10 times more powerful than what you think. Negative things are four to seven times more powerful than positive things. This is according to a Harvard study. So saying something negative out loud is 40 to 70 times more impactful in a negative way than thinking something positive. The takeaway, don't let your players say stupid things out loud, like frustration with circumstances or coaches. People control what they say, but they can't control their thoughts. Language and behavior determine success. And here's the third takeaway. The illusion of choice. If you're committed to something, boy, you really don't have a lot of choices. You attain greatness by what you choose not to do. And here's the action step. So a question for you. Are you satisfied with how you impact the mental side of the game within your team? Nick Saban discovered that you have to have a system for the mental side of the game. And players' mental approach was every bit as important as their physical conditioning. So he created a process, a system for getting his players where he wanted them mentally. As you probably know, I'm totally into mindset. That's my specialty. And I'm a strong believer in greater athletic performance is not going to come from better weight training or better nutrition. It's coming from upping the mental side of the game. And based on my research, 
the biggest challenge today for athletes is focus. And when you really look at this closely, focus is why better teams get beat by inferior teams. More specifically, lack of focus. And they begin missing tackles that they normally would make. They miss shots they'd normally make. They commit penalties they normally wouldn't commit. It's all about focus. And here's something to think about. Before a competition, do you prime your athletes regarding their mindset and focus? Do you do anything like visualization immediately before competition? Visualization is just one of the cutting edge techniques that are used today to up the mental side of the game. If you'd like to learn more about this, let me know. Now, let's listen to Bill Gates. He talks about his top 10 life lessons. When I started Microsoft, I didn't think of it as all that risky. I mean, I was so excited about what we were doing. It's true I could have gone bankrupt, but, you know, I had a set of skills that were highly employable. And, in fact, my parents were still willing to let me go back to Harvard and finish my education if I wanted to. The thing that was scary to me wasn't quitting and starting the company. It was when I started hiring my friends, and they expected to be paid. And then we had customers who went bankrupt, customers that I'd counted on. And so then I got this incredibly conservative approach that I wanted to have enough money in the bank to pay a year's worth of payroll. I'm almost through to that the whole time. We have about 10 billion now, which is, is pretty much enough yeah. for the next year. Yeah. He consistently ranks in the Forbes list of the world's wealthiest people. He's one of the best known entrepreneurs of the personal computer revolution. He is the second most generous philanthropist in America, having given over $28 billion to charity. He's Bill Gates, and here are his top 10 rules for success. If you're going to start a company, it takes so much energy that you know you it better overcome your your feeling of risk. I don't think that you necessarily, if you're going to start a company, should do it at the start of your career. I think there's a lot to be said for working for a company, learning how they do things. You know, if you're young, it's hard to go lease premises. They they made that hard for me. You couldn't rent a car uh, when you were uh, uh, under 25 at the time, so I was always taking taxis to go see customers. Uh, and uh, the people would, you know, people would say, "Well, we're going to go have a discussion in the bar." Well, I couldn't go to the bar. Uh, and but you know, that's fun because I'll tell you, when people are first skeptical and they think, "Oh, this kid doesn't know anything," then when you show them you've really got a good product and you know something, they actually tend to go overboard and they think, "Whoa, you know." They know a lot. Uh, let's really do an incredible amount with these people. So our youth, at least in this country, uh, was a, a huge asset for us once we reached a, a certain threshold. It is hard. It's hard to hire old, older people um, because they'll be a little bit conservative about whether they should come and, and take the risk. And it took three or four years before we could go out into the normal sort of employment pool. But those, those problems that come with starting a firm, you better think of those as, as part of the, the pleasure, part of the, the, the challenge that, that is part of the, the excitement. I want to thank Harvard for this honor. I'll be changing my job next year, and it will be nice to finally have a college degree on my resume. <laughs> I applaud the graduates for taking a much more direct route to your degrees. For my, my part, I'm just happy that the Crimson called me 
Harvard's most successful dropout. <laughs> I guess that makes me valedictorian of my own special class. I did the best of everyone who failed. But I also want to be recognized as the guy who got Steve Ballmer to drop out of business school. <laughs> I'm a bad influence. That's why I was invited to speak at your graduation. If I'd spoken at your orientation, fewer of you might be here today. I'm in meetings a lot. My calendar gets very full with those. And then at night, after the kids have gone to bed, I'm on email a great deal. I get, get messages during the day. That's my chance to give long responses. And then over the weekend, I, I uh, send a lot of mail as well, as well. I take two weeks a year to just go off and read and think, where I'm not interrupted by work or anything else. I'm just uh, solidly trying to think about the future and people get to send me things to read as part of that so-called uh, Think Week. So it's a nice mix of things. About 25% of the time that I'm out uh, traveling around, meeting with customers, Europe, uh, Asia, and that sort of helps me think, okay, do we have the right priorities? What, what are people responding well to and what would they, they like to see us do better? Hello, I'm Bill Gates, Chairman of Microsoft. In this video, you're going to see the future, Windows. Microsoft first came up with the Windows concept back in 1983. And today, the leading software users have switched into the Windows environment. It's really incredible how quickly our powerful applications like Word and Excel and PowerPoint have been adopted. It's not just Microsoft applications. Even companies like WordPerfect and Lotus have now come out with Windows applications. And every week we see new innovative work. It's really attracting all the innovation in the industry. We predicted this a long time ago. And now it, it's the future. The key point there is you've got to enjoy what you do every day. And for me, that's working with very smart people. It's working on new problems. You know, every time we think, hey, we've had a little bit of success, we're pretty careful not to dwell on it too much because the bar gets raised. I love Bridge. Uh, Bridge helps you think. It's a game you can play your entire life and keep getting better and better. Uh, I think anybody who's good at Bridge is going to be great at a lot of things. Uh, so I really encourage people to get involved, and I want to thank the people who've put things together for juniors. Uh, they'll be thanking you the rest of their life because Bridge is such a great sport. I talked to my dad, I talked to Warren, uh, I talked to my wife Melinda. Uh, so I, I have enough people that know me and actually know where my uh, judgment isn't its strongest, where I might get overexcited about something or you know, forget to think about something. And so they're good at correcting, particularly Melinda, good at correcting uh, whatever uh, those blind spots are. And, and I think it's good to encourage your friends and advisors uh, to really give them that license. You know, I, I can go to a party and forget to say hello to various people or something. That's a very minor example of my blind spots. <laughs> Not but... to the hostess. <laughs> <laughs> Melinda would help me do yeah, that. Yeah, she so, would. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, a, a small number of people 
that you can turn to on, on certain key things is a, a great, great asset. My best business decisions really have to do with uh, picking people. You know, deciding to go into partnership with Paul Allen uh, is, is probably at the top of the list. And then uh, subsequently uh, hiring a friend, Steve Ballmer. And having somebody who you totally trust, who's totally committed, who shares your vision and yet has a, a little bit different set of skills and also acts as a check on you. You know, some of the ideas you come up with, you run by them because you know they're going to say, hey, wait a minute, uh, you know, have you thought about this and that? And just, you know, the, the benefit of sparking off of somebody who's, who's got that kind of brilliance, it's not only made it fun, but it's really led to a lot of success. So picking, picking a partner is, is crucial. I had one habit that uh, I developed when I, when I was uh, at college that was actually a very bad habit, which was I like to show people that I didn't do any work uh, and that I didn't go to classes and I didn't care. And then at the very last minute, uh, like two days before the test, I'd, I'd get serious about it. And, and people, people thought that was funny. Uh, you know, that was my positioning, the guy who did nothing until the last minute. Then when I went into business, that was a really bad habit, uh, and it took me a couple of years to get over that. Nobody praised me because I, I would do things at the last minute, and, and I tried to reverse. Uh, to students I'd actually, uh, I didn't think that highly of, who were always organized and had things done on time. I'm, I'm still working on it, but uh, uh, procrastination is not a good, good habit. Bill can change clothes in the car. So I'm going to challenge Bill Gates. My partner at Facebook, Sheryl Sandberg, and Netflix's founder and CEO, Reed Hastings. I'm glad to give to ALS. It's a great cause, but I, I want to accept this challenge. I want to do it better than it's been done. Been working on this, you know, got this design. There we go. Yeah. It's going to be great. I'm here to join the people bringing attention to Lou Gehrig's disease by taking the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. I'm going to challenge three more people, Elon Musk, Ryan Seacrest, and Chris Anderson of TED. Consider yourself challenged. You have 24 hours. Good luck. true that you can leap over a chair from a standing position? It depends on the size of the chair. Uh, I'll cheat a little bit. 
<laughs> yes! By the way, I believe in uh, winners and losers, and, and especially the freedom to fail. Who? Who? Him? Who? Him? Who? Him? Him? him, 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 him who? Me? Me? Because you made it this far in a video, I want to celebrate you. Most people start and don't finish. Most people never actually follow through. Most people say they want something, but they don't ever do the work to actually get it. But you are different. You are special. Believe Nation, you made it here all the way to the end, and I love you. So it's a special celebration if you put a hashtag believe down in the comments below on this video, I will showcase you and celebrate you somewhere on the screen in a future video because you are awesome. For 10 more amazing rules from Warren Buffett, check the video right there next to me. I think you'll love it. Continue to believe and I'll see you there. Tap dancing to work, Warren. How can other people tap dance to work? What's the secret of that? You find your passion. You find your passion. I was very, very lucky to find it, you know, when I was uh, seven or eight years old. and. So coaches, those were good, weren't they? So here's the action step. Think about Bill Gates lesson number two. He says you have to have a bad influence in your life that encourages you not to do what everybody else is doing. I'll share something you'll find interesting. So in my class here at the University of Texas, I teach the science of success, the science of leveraging yourself. And I ask my class each year a simple question. Who wants the average life? Well, as you would imagine, nobody's hand goes up. And interestingly, they don't even know what the average life is. So I tell them, in America today, here's what the average life is. 63% of people don't have $500 to their name. Amazing. 70% of people are either obese or seriously overweight. And according to Gallup, only 30% of people are happy. So that's the average life. And I share that with you because it so relates to what Bill Gates is saying. Don't do what everybody else is doing. That's what's creating the nightmare of the average life. I believe this so firmly that my life philosophy literally is look at what everybody else is doing and do the opposite. If you're a big Seinfeld fan, you remember the episode where George started doing the opposite of what his natural inclination was. <laughs> and things turned out great. So what's the takeaway? Encourage your players to look at what everybody else is doing and do the opposite and embrace that as a way of doing life. 
Boy, I find it works pretty darn well. I just wish I had understood this when I was 20 instead of 50. Until next time, hook them.